so father that is our prayer today that you would show us christ and that our hearts would just beat for the truth of your word that our eyes would be open and our ears would be clean and wide open to hear your truth father we live such distracted lives and we're so easily discouraged and so easily defeated and so use your word to teach us how to live the way you've created us to live and the way you've instructed us to live and i just pray that you would use your word through the ministry of your holy spirit to grow us and to strengthen us and to conform us to the image of the lord jesus christ it's in his name lord that we gathered it's in his name that we've sung and and it's his name that we take our bibles in his name we pray Jesus precious name. Amen. Amen. We're in Exodus chapter 20 as the music uh, continues and it'll fade in just a minute. Exodus chapter 20. And if you're new with us today, uh you need to know that we've been going through the 10 commandments. Um this is a word that came directly from God to Moses over 4000 years ago but you um if you look at this list this 10 words from God you'll find that it is just most appropriate and relevant even for today it is just exactly what we need to strengthen us in our walk today as we uh, approach the 10th commandment and we might have another message or two in fact i plan on at least one more message on the 4th commandment in the weeks ahead uh, to clarify some things that i felt that uh, could be strengthened um today our final word from god the 10th commandment let's read our text it's exodus chapter 20 verse 17 You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You know it can happen any time and at any place. It can happen at work, it can happen at school, it can happen at church. It could be going on right now. It's that green-eyed monster that creeps up out of nowhere. And deep in the recesses of your heart there is a stirring and there becomes this longing and there becomes this desire and it is for something that someone else has that you do not have. Now God knew what he was talking about and When he gave us these 10 words, he instructed us to have no other gods before him. We recognize that the first half of our list has to do with our relationship with God. The second half of our list has to do with our relationship with mankind so that we can love the Lord our God with all our heart and we can love our neighbor as ourselves. These commandments break down into those categories and he's been instructing us how to live in a way that pleases him. It is interesting how this green-eyed monster has an access to the brain and the heart of people of all ages at all times even here this morning we have to be on guard against covetousness. It happened to a man named Achan one day. I know that Achan did not get out of bed and decide how he could figure out a way to be really really dumb. Do you ever notice how we don't do that? We just kind of do it automatically. I didn't wake up today and try to figure out how I can just be an idiot. 
But there are things that go on in my heart and things that go on in my mind that tend to work their way out that ultimately end up in behavioral patterns that end up being destructive. Outside of the will of God and outside of God's ability to bless us. For Achan, it happened in the context of a day in battle. This story is in Joshua chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. Let me just remind you. You remember Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. And right before they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, Moses died. God took him home and General Joshua was raised up to take his place. You'll find this story in Joshua chapter 7. It would be good for you to read it later this week. God gave specific instruction to Joshua. You see, as the children of Israel were to enter the promised land, this beautiful land of, of plenty that God had given them to bless them, it was dwelt by people that God said, their time is up, I'm removing them from the land. You see, the wages of sin is always death, and we never know God's timetable when it's going to happen. But we know specifically from Scripture that God had given the Canaanites at least 400 more years than he originally planned. When he promised the land to Abraham, he said, there for 400 more years they can live there because my patience hasn't run out with them yet. By the time Israel got there to cross in the Jordan River and to cross into the Promised Land, God's patience was up and the wages of sin was death. And so the very first thing they were going to encounter was the city of Jericho. When they crossed the Jordan River, there was Jericho, a mighty walled fortress city-state, powerfully fortressed, and the Israelites, with just their hand weapons, had no way of penetrating the walls and destroying that city as God commanded. And so God gave General Joshua some really strange instruction. God does that sometimes. Sometimes what God's doing, it doesn't make sense at first. And so God said, General Joshua, here's what you do. You get a battalion of soldiers, and then you get a group of priests with horns, ram's horns, that they can blow trumpets, and then you follow it up with another battalion of soldiers, and on Monday morning you wake up and you march around the city. One time. That's it. Go back to camp. Tuesday they do it again. I would have loved to have been there when Joshua presented this plan to his generals and his sergeants and his platoon leaders. Okay, boys, here's the plan. All right, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to get up. We're going to get in front of the priest. We're going to be behind the priest. And we're going to just march them around the city. And then we're coming back to camp. And that's it. That's it. So they did it seven times in seven days. And on the seventh day, they did it seven times. So once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, seven times, and on the seventh time around, God said, blow the trumpets, have the people yell for all they're worth. They did. The earth shook. The walls came down. The soldiers run in and destroy the city. And Jericho was to be a burnt offering before the Lord. It was to go up in smoke and to be a burnt offering before the Lord. All of the gold and the silver was to be harvested out of the city, and it was to be taken to God's temple because God said, I own this one. This this one is for me. And so Achan, one of the soldiers, is in there helping pillage and destroy and burn and wipe off the face of the earth, the city of Jericho, and he's in evidently a back bedroom of a house where they had kicked in the doors and they were destroying everything, and he's evidently back farther behind everybody else, and he's in the back room by himself, and he opens up a closet door to see what's there, and there are some beautiful Babylonian garments I mean the kind of clothes that he really would like to have. He opens up a drawer and there's a wedge of gold and silver there and he puts it in his backpack. You see, God gave specific instruction. It's not for you, it's all for me. You have to give it over, it's done. But in his heart, 
Back in that corner closet was a green-eyed monster that looked up at Achan and said, Take it. You want it. Oh, what was going on inside Achan? I don't know. It was similar to what was going on inside of King David at the time when generals and kings go off to war. King David is up on his portico, evidently a raised patio in his palace built on the rooftop of the king's palace in Jerusalem. And he looks down on his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba, and he says, she's beautiful and I want her. She belonged to his neighbor, She was completely off limits to him, but he wanted her, so he took her. We have stories in the New Testament that illustrate this as well. We have an interesting story in Acts chapter 5 of the early church gathered, the apostles are preaching, and evidently one day when they gathered, one of their, one of their fine leaders named Barnabas, the son of encouragement, Barnabas stood up and he said, I have a testimony today. And Barnabas said, I was able to sell some land, and I've, I've made a lot of money, and I've brought the money. And he comes forward in the service, and he laid it down at the disciples' feet, and the apostles distributed it to the poor and the needy in the church. And evidently everybody clapped. The Bible doesn't say this, but I guess Barnabas, just everybody loved him and they were hugging on his neck after church and and he got all kinds of acclaim and sitting back in the back was Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias was the husband and Sapphira was the the, the wife. And they thought to themselves, wouldn't it be nice if that was us that everybody were clapping for? So they went out and sold the piece of ground that they had. And the next Sunday during testimony time, the hands went up and Ananias stood up and he said, Hey, we sold some land and we give all the money to feed for the poor here at the church. And Peter said, Ananias, why are you lying to me and to the Holy Spirit? Evidently, in Ananias' heart was a desire for money, a desire for things that he had seen in other people. And he wanted it and he couldn't release these things as an offering before the Lord. And God struck him dead, Acts chapter 5, struck him dead right there in front of everybody. What a day to be in church. A few minutes later, his wife evidently was out using the bathroom or something. She comes in and she comes to the nursery or something and she comes in and she says the same thing and she gets struck dead. That green-eyed monster can even be in church. I want us to learn three lessons in the few minutes we have this morning to receive our message. And I hope you will listen closely I know that if you've been here under the messages this summer, that you really recognize how relevant these Ten Commandments are. I think that in so many ways, this Tenth Commandment is is just extraordinarily pertinent for our culture and our society. Let's read it again and let's talk about it. It's Exodus chapter 20. And uh, we are going to turn in our Bibles to a couple other passages. And we're going to learn three particular lessons that we want to gain from this concept of God's instruction to His people to not covet your neighbor's house. All you have to do is stop right there and think, man, that is really an important word for today. How many times do you drive around and think, boy, I like that house. Look at that house. I mean, if ever there's a status symbol in the United States that's not a vehicle, it's a house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. We live in a culture of immorality and a breakdown in moral standard and integrity. And if that's not appropriate, I don't know what is. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. And then in this context, there was servitude. There were people who were underneath people as servants. Don't covet his male servant or his female servant. And for us, perhaps that would be applied to looking at someone who has a staff, someone who's in a position of prestige, and they have people who are under them. 
And we sometimes want to walk around, oh, I'd like to sit in that chair and have, snap my fingers and have all these people moving around. I'd like to be that guy. And he goes on to say, don't covet his ox or his donkey. That's not a real big problem with Americans. Oh, look at that donkey. I'd really like to have that one. Now, it might, if your last name's Johnson or something, you might have a problem with that kind of thing, but the ox. Uh, let's translate that into a tractor or a four-wheel drive pickup truck or maybe the donkey's a Mercedes-Benz or a, a nice car with some wheels. Transportation, power, the ability to get work done, the ability to pull heavy things. You can relate. The principles are the same. People are the same everywhere. The first of the three lessons that I'd like us to get is, number one, I'd like you to understand that this Tenth Commandment is a word of contrast. It is a word of contrast. What do I mean by that? I want you to notice that the first four before this, the last four that we've dealt with, thou shalt not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I want you to notice that these are action-based. That to commit these sins, there has to be some kind of behavior or action take place. It's really hard to murder somebody when you don't do anything, just sitting in your chair. It's hard, hard to steal. You see, when you steal, you've got to get up and go to your neighbor's garage when he's not looking and, and get his favorite fishing pole or his yellow DeWalt drill and get it and bring it to your garage. And I stole it. I had to go do it. When we get to commandment number 10, all I have to do is think. It's not action-based. It's attitudinal. It's attitude-based. Listen. For me to commit adultery, though, I have to get up and I have to go find her and lie down with her. But think about how relevant this attitude is and how important it is to address it because foundational to so many sin, so much sin, is this attitude of covetousness. Thou shalt not murder. I want the money in the cash register. Bam! I've murdered because I've wanted the money I can't steal or murder in that context without probably sitting around with my drinking buddies or talking and listening to my music and thinking, how am I going to get some money? How am I going to get some money? How am I going to do this? I want this. I want this so bad. So I will commit murder and I will commit the sin and crime of stealing because I have been coveting things inside my heart. So this is an important aspect to deal with because it comes from within. You could be sitting right now, clothed in your right mind in church, having just sung Jesus' name, and be coveting after something that is off limits. The Hebrew word for covet, the Hebrew word for covet, literally, if you translated it literally, would mean something like this, to set your desire, or to fix your desire. I set my desire on something. It's an interesting word. It is a driving desire, or you might use the word lust, to lust. It's a deep-seated, secret, hidden, heart desire for something that is someone else's. It is off-limits to me. It is not mine, but I want it. Now, let me clarify that I don't think it's wrong to see what someone else is doing and want to do what they're doing. For example, uh, you see someone and they've just, they really know how to order their life. 
and they have a clean garage and their car is clean and you've visited them and you've uh, sat out on their patio and talked to them and, and you just, and you recognize, you know, the way they structure their lives is a lot better than my mess. I'm going to go home and I'm going to be more like them. That's modeling an example. That's a good thing. What's a bad thing is if I go home and I can't sleep that night because I just keep thinking, how come that guy has a clean, how come that guy has such a nice car in his garage and that guy has a bass boat and that guy has all that stuff and I've got nothing but debt in my life. I want what he has even to the point where I would be happy on the inside if I saw him fall. But I really would love it if what he has could be mine. That's what covetousness is. Not to be confused with good example or modeling proper behavior and wanting to mimic it. I want to point something out very quickly here. We don't have a lot of time this morning, but we can benefit in the next few minutes. Will you turn in your New Testament? Because I want to make sure you understand something. And turn to the book of James, chapter 1. And I want you to see how important it is to recognize that these inner compulsions, that the desires of the heart that are sinful be dealt with properly. Covetousness is the desire of my heart to have something that God says is off limits in my life. All right? And it's in my heart, in that green-eyed monster, related words like envy, hence the green-eyed monster. Envy or greed would be related kissing cousins to covetousness. In James chapter 1, I want you to see something that's really powerful. In James chapter 1, beginning with verse 14, James is way at the back of your New Testament, um, almost to the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 14, James says, But each person... Well, let's pick it up with um, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. And so one thing you cannot say, when you have that deep desire inside for something that you know is outside the will of God, or off limits, or sinful, or a little voice comes up inside that balances out the other desire, and it says, you better not do that, that's not for you. The temptation part does not come from God. God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt people with evil. But notice where it comes from. This is why this is such a serious problem. But each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is, the ESV uses the word, lured, lured, L-U-R-E-D, lured and enticed by his own desire. The American Standard or King James, New King James, might say by his own lust. A deep-seated desire that comes from where? From inside that person. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is, has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, as it always does, gives birth to death. Notice that the desire preceded the behavior. The sin was committed in the activity. Now, Jesus made it clear that our thought life and the desires of our hearts can indeed be outside the will of God and can be sinful. In the New Testament, when Jesus taught, where in the Old Testament, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery or you shall not sleep with another man's wife. In the New Testament, Jesus said, if you even look at her to lust after her in your heart. So there's this problem with this lustful desire. It is an inappropriate, unlawful, sinful desire of the flesh. And it comes from within. 
Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 15. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 through 20, Matthew 15, 10 through 20, Jesus was teaching the Pharisees and teaching the disciples, and he, they were talking about uh, being sinful by eating the wrong things, and Jesus said, it doesn't matter what you put in your body, you're just going to excrete it out. It's not what you put in your body that corrupts you, it's what comes out of the heart and out of your mouth that corrupts you. It is the, it is the evil of your heart. You see, each of us have an evil problem. Each of us have what the Bible calls a sin problem. We are born sinners. We are not born naturally good. We are born with a bent to do wrong. And even after we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, we are in the process of conforming to the image of Christ, and we're being sanctified. It's not fully complete until we're with the Lord, and we shall be like Him, 1 John chapter 2. Not God's, but we will be like Him in form and character in a lot of different ways in His presence. We'll still be just redeemed people in heaven forever, not little gods. But Christ is our model, and we will be like Him more fully in heaven someday. Until that day, we fight with the residuals of the sinful flesh. And so, yes, you can be a Christian and you can covet another man's truck or another man's house or another man's job, another man's dog or another man's deer rifle. But Jesus and James make it clear that this comes from the inner recesses and the secret places of the heart. So if we're going to ultimately overcome covetousness, you've got to deal with your sinful heart. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Point number one, this is a word of contrast. And you can turn back to Exodus. Well, turn to, uh, let's go to Luke chapter 12 quickly. Luke chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 20, we're reminded that the, the commandments that we've been dealing with are action-based, but this number 10 is this matter of covetousness is attitude-based. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus dealt with this, and this is a familiar passage. There's a crowd of people, Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. A crowd of people had come around Jesus, and somebody in the crowd hollered out to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said, Jesus said to him, Man, Luke chapter 12, verse 14, But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care, Jesus said to the crowd, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Is the Bible relevant or what? If we don't live in a culture that identifies its self-worth with what we have, I don't know where we live. And Jesus says to the crowd, Listen, beware of covetousness. Beware of what comes out of the inner recesses of the heart that you desire to have these things so that your identity and your pleasure and your joy is only fulfilled in things. He goes on then to share a parable. And he told them this parable saying, verse 16, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. So far, so good, right? Guy's industrious. The guy's productive. The guy's making a plan. He's being productive. He's maximizing his potential. That's all good. He's not wasteful. But, verse 19, this is where he runs into problems. He says, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many, many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. 
Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You have poured your life into the longings of your heart for more stuff just so you can take it easy. You've ignored God. You don't care a thing about the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. Who's ruling your life? You are driven by these inner desires. But tonight is your night of accountability. Then what's all this? They're going to sell all this stuff Pennies to the pound at a yard sale that you've poured your whole life into. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I think what Jesus is talking about here is the problem of control in my life. So our second lesson today, first is a, this is a word of contrast. It's attitude and what's going on in the inner recesses of the heart more than it's about behavior. It leads to behavior. Secondly, this is a word of contrast. Excuse me, a word of control. A word of control. Who's in control of the drives of your life? What is it that drives your life? Who's in the driver's seat of your life? This rich man was eaten up with covetousness, evidently. He wanted everything he ever saw that he ever could get. Jesus uses this as an illustration about covetousness. He used the very word covetousness. And he's talking about the the drive of your heart being for things rather than for a desire to please God and to be what God wants you to be and come in underneath the control of God in your life. By the way, it's a good question to ask yourself when you see a passage like this. What would happen to me if God said, tonight's your night to come stand before me? Are you ready for that? Are you covered by the blood of Christ? Has Jesus, have you, has Jesus blood and work at the cross, has he become your substitute? You see, you can't please a holy God in your own strength. You can't do enough good to please a holy God. He's too holy. He's too righteous. And we're too sinful. And we've got too much junk going on in the inner recesses of our hearts. But we have to come to the cross and we have to look to Jesus who said, I'll go there in your place. God loved the world so much He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Come to Christ today. Trade in all the junk for the righteousness of Christ, so that if tonight's your night to stand before a holy God, He will look at you and not see you, He will see Christ. I would hope you'll think about those things. Finally, this is a word about contentment, and with this we close. Let's just think about that familiar verse in Philippians 4.19. And my God shall supply, how much? All of your need according to his riches and glory. Philippians 4.19. Listen, this is a word about contentment. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 went at great length to illustrate the importance and the value of godliness with contentment. Why? Because it takes away the problem of covetousness. Listen, when I stand in my driveway and my neighbor's garage door goes up and I see his car and his boat and his lawnmower, and then I see his wife out on the back patio, and then I even see his house and his lawn and his grass with no... And listen, 
One of the easiest ways to get to a place in your life where you're dissatisfied with the people and the plan of blessing that God has for you is to look out at other people and wish you had what they had. When I covet what somebody else has, it's like I'm telling God, what you've given me is not good enough. Psalm 23.1, remember that familiar verse? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, then I evidently don't need what's in my neighbor's garage or in my neighbor's bedroom or in my neighbor's office. Because God is my shepherd and he's promised to guide and direct my paths. He's promised to meet all of my needs according to his riches and glory. He's a loving heavenly father. He's a good shepherd and I shall not want. And for me to end up coveting and desiring the things that other people have or to look at my friend or my neighbor and say, I wish I didn't have this wife. I wish I had that wife and I wish I didn't have this car. I wish I had that car. I wish I didn't have this house. I wish I had that house. It's it's exactly like saying, God, you have, you have just failed in your plan of provision and blessing for my life. And I am completely dissatisfied with what God, my shepherd, is giving me so that I do not have to want according to his riches and glory. And I'm saying it's not good enough. We ought to be convicted by that kind of attitude. This is a word of contrast. It's a word of control. Who's in control of your life? You cannot serve both God and money. Number three, it's a word about contentment. And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. I invite you to bow your heads before I close in prayer. And would you just take a minute and examine what's going on in the inner recesses of your heart right now? Deep in the command center of your life. Are you content in Christ? Are you satisfied with how God has chosen to guide and direct your steps? Are you thankful and blessed by your wife or by your husband, by your children, by your car, by your house, by your yard? Or are you all tied up in knots because you don't have what somebody else has? For some of us, it's time to knock it off. And get our focus back on Christ. Now for some of us, it's been our own dumb decision making that's kept us from some of the blessings that God has for us and some of his provision. Ask God to give you discernment and wisdom and how to get back on track. But get your eyes off your neighbor's wife. Get your eyes off your neighbor's car, his boat, his lawn, his pool, his job, his clothes his golf clubs. And look to Jesus. Fill up on Jesus. Become satisfied being a child of God and let your shepherd meet your needs so that you will not want. Some of us need to confess the sin of covetousness today. Some of us might be precariously close to allowing covetousness to lead us into other sinful behavior. Right now it's hidden. It's inside. It's your attitude. You can't play around with it or it will become action and activity. So Father, convict us, change us, grow us, help us to be content. 
Help us to be satisfied in Jesus and to wait upon you that you would meet our needs. Give us wisdom for living that we can structure and organize and be the men and women and the families that you've called us to be. Father, for those who might be having real problems in this area, would you please bring great conviction this week as their eyes fall on the things that they so desire. Would you convict their hearts in a great way this week? Would you turn their hearts and their minds and their eyes to Jesus and fill them up and show them how to be satisfied under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? That's our prayer. It's in his name we pray. Amen.